You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. We've been doing a series, and we called it Trustworthy Statements. And this is the last of them. And what we've done is gone through, there's three books in the Bible that are called the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy, and then the book of Titus. They were written by Paul to two of his protégés. Obviously, one was named Timothy. He was pastoring in a church uh, in the city of Ephesus. And the other was a guy named Titus who was pastoring a church on the island of Crete. And he's giving them just advice about how to run the church, how a church ought to be run, what it ought to look like what things they ought to emphasize. And throughout these letters, there's 13 chapters long, repeatedly Paul will refer to something he sometimes will call a trustworthy statement, or he will uh, speak of sort of make, a, make sort of a creedal confessional statement. And these parts of the New Testament are extremely important in that they actually were the articulations of Christian doctrine that were written actually before the letters of the New Testament were. We're pretty sure that there was a body of what they called apostolic core beliefs that were written down and articulated by the initial church, which taught about what Christians believed about salvation, about grace, about holiness, about who Christ is. And these parts of the New Testament are extremely important because not only do they articulate doctrine to the church, but they also let us know what the church, the initial church emphasized, what they thought was really important, what was really essential that Christians know and understand and believe. And so we've looked at all these and looked at several of them uh, over the past several weeks, and we're going to land with, with one more here, and it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read verse 14 through 16 to you. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. Now, if you were reading this chapter, all of chapter 3, Paul begins verse 1 of chapter 3 by talking, by saying a trustworthy statement. He said, it's a trustworthy statement. If somebody wants to be an elder, it's a good thing. That's a great thing to want to be a leader in the church. And then he goes through and he talks about what church leaders, how they function, and particularly what kind of character they ought to have. He talks about what kind of character an elder ought to have, a leader of a church, what they ought to be like. What, and he's very uh, intense about it. And then he goes on, he talks about what kind of character a deacon should be like, whether it's a man or a woman. He, he talks about characteristics of a man who's a deacon and characteristics of a woman who would be a deacon. And he goes through the, these characteristics, and, uh, and he talks about church leadership. 
And then he says, this is why this is so important. Because the church is important. And he tells us why the church is important. And he says, a church is important because it is, he calls the word, the pillar and, the pillar and support of the truth. And literally what he says is a church, the, the words are the foundation and the frame of the truth. Now, if we think of someone who is building a building, and this is kind of how he's picturing God. God is somebody building a building. That, that, that builder, that architect has an idea in his head of what he wants it to look like, about what kind of statement it's going to make, about how it will function. He has an idea in his head of what it is. And then he, he digs a foundation and he puts up a frame. And, and, he's, and what Paul is saying is that's what the church is. It is the foundation. It is the frame of God's idea of what people ought to be like, of what his people ought to be like in the earth. And he says that it's that what we are the frame of and the foundation of is the truth. We're the pillar of the truth, the foundation of the truth. We are the framing of the truth. And then he goes on there and he begins to talk about the truth he's talking about. What truth? What truth are we the foundation and the frame of as a church body? And he calls it a great mystery. The mystery of godliness. And then he quotes a poem, an ancient Christian uh, hymn. And let's look at, the, at what he's talking about here. First thing he talks about this great mystery of godliness. And he says, he appeared in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh. The mystery of godliness is first this. He appeared in the flesh. We are celebrating Advent season. The word Advent literally means the appearance what we understand is that in, as, and through Jesus Christ, God appeared in the flesh. The way John articulates it in his gospel in John chapter 1, he, calls, he talks about the word. He uses a word that's a Greek word called logos. We get the word logic from it. And the roots of that word are, are basically, it was understood to be the brilliance behind creation. Whatever organized Whatever put this world together in such a precise, brilliant, magnificent way, that mind, it was a Greek concept, that mind is called logos. And, and Paul uses this, I mean, excuse me, John uses this Greek word and he says, in the beginning was logos. And he says, but in Jesus Christ, logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of the brilliance of the creator. We beheld him. He made him known. In Colossians, it describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Last night when I, we went to a wedding and I got home and I caught a little bit of a football game that went on in Atlanta, we should have been in that game. We were cheated out of it, you know that, but it, we should have been there. But, but I was watching that game, and, and, and it's on my TV, and what happens, this dynamic thing happens. There is a real live football game going on in Atlanta 
But that real live football game is transferred to the plane of my TV, and I can see exactly what happened. And this is how we understand Jesus. There is an eternal, invisible, immaterial creator who came and became a finite, limited, temporal, fleshly being in, as, and through Jesus Christ. He appeared. He appeared. He became flesh. He became human. The Greek word is the word epiphany. We get the word epiphany from it, but it is, he, he came, it was, it was the idea, the thought, the immaterial became real. And, and it was an amazing thing. In Christ, God became human. We see the divinity, the divine in a man. And in Jesus Christ, we also see the human in God. It's a powerful mystery. But God came and became part of this world in, in, from the inside out. He was no longer the creator standing over creation and managing and appraising it. He actually became part of it and experienced it. He appeared in the flesh. The second thing Paul says about the mystery of godliness is that he not only did he appear in the flesh, but he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, that is a way all throughout the New Testament, language they use to talk about the resurrection. They understood the resurrection was the vindication of Jesus Christ and that the Holy Spirit was the one who raised Jesus from the dead. It was the vindication. And what he means by that is that this resurrection, the Holy Spirit, by raising Jesus from the dead, vindicated every claim he ever made. He vindicated his claims to divinity. He, divinity, he vindicated his claims on the moral teachings he had and the commands he gave us on how to live. He vindicated them. You may have noticed, but a, a month ago in America, we had an election. Did anybody notice that? Now, most of you probably voted for somebody or certainly voted against somebody. Now, think about the candidate you voted against. How you felt about them. What you thought of their policies. What you thought of their character or whatever. Their competence. Think of that person you voted against. What if that person, several weeks before the election, was assassinated and killed? We had a burial for him, and we did what we do. And then three days later, that candidate came back to life, was resurrected. How would you feel about your thoughts about that candidate? I would question what I thought. I would question what I believe. I would feel like God in resurrecting that candidate would have vindicated him, would have vindicated his platform, would have vindicated his supporters. That's how I would have understood it. And this is how they understood the resurrection. It was, it was a miracle. It was a wonderful thing. But in resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God vindicated him. God said, this is my son. 
God said this, what he says is true. If he says he is the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but through him, that is truth. What he says about morality, what he says about the value of people more than, than money and more than anything else, those things are true. And they're vindicated. So he appeared in the flesh, but he was vindicated in the spirit. The next thing it says about him is he was beheld by angels. He was seen by angels. Some versions say beheld by angels. And, and that word almost means he was gawked at. He was amazed. And the, the word angels, a lot of times when we, we read that word in the New Testament, we generally think it means a big white celestial being that is a supernatural being that has wings. And certainly that is an angel. And there are angels, particularly when we read the Gospels, that's the use of that word and some in the book of Revelation. But when we read Christian history, they also understood this word angel was used to speak of eyewitnesses of the resurrection. It was also sometimes used to talk about church leaders or founders of churches. The book of Revelation, he writes to seven angels. He's not writing to seven etherical beings. He's writing to the leadership of, of seven churches that are in Asia. And what this is probably talking about is, is not that Jesus was beheld by celestial beings, but that there were real eyewitnesses of his resurrection. That human beings saw him alive after he dead, after he's dead. And those guys went and gave their life for that truth, for what they saw. He was beheld by angels. He was proclaimed to the nations. He was believed on in the world. And again, this is talking about something the Old Testament said would happen when the Messiah came. One of the things that would be characteristic of the Jewish Messiah, back in the, 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 the pre-Christ days, the days of the Old Testament, Jews were the only people who were monotheistic. They believed in one God, Yahweh. We can read about the, the Old Testament. We can read about his history. We can read, read a lot about it. And they, over and over again, the prophets would talk about a coming Messiah. And one of the things they said would happen when the Messiah came is that all the nations would hear the truth. They would see a great light. And they would believe. And they would start following the God of Israel. They'd start living like he wants them to live. And what we see in our world today is the fulfillment of that amazing prophecy. That God who appeared in the flesh, who was resurrected by the, from the dead, who was seen by eyewitnesses, he was proclaimed in nations and for some crazy reason, people who had no background to Christ, no background to Jew, no background to monotheism, believed in this story. They believed that gospel over and over again, literally fulfilling what the Old Testament said. Today we have a world full of Gentiles, non-Jews, who are worshiping the Lord, who are worshiping the God of Israel, and they do it because of Jesus. Remember the story of a guy named Alfred Elsheim, who was a rabbi that lived over 100 years ago. He was in New York City, and he was in rabbinical school. And he was 
researching and he was wondering, how did the stories of the Old Testament, the stories of Joseph, how do the, these Gentiles know the Ten Commandments? How did, how did Judaism spread so much throughout the world? How'd that happen? And he began to research it historically. How did Judaism spread? How did the knowledge of Israel's God fill the earth like it does? They began to research it and research it. And as a Jewish rabbi, a student, he came to one conclusion, one word for why it happened. And that word was Jesus. Jesus is the reason. And in that moment, he said, oh my God, he has done exactly what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do in a way you never would have believed. And he gave his life to Christ and was converted. Great is the mystery of godliness. He appeared. He was resurrected. He was seen by eyewitnesses. Resurrected. He was proclaimed unto the world. And the last thing says he was received up in glory. Listen, Jesus Christ is not just a great philosopher. He is not just a social revolutionary standing up for the disenfranchised. He is eternal God. He is God of very God. He is ascended on high. Daniel had a vision in his day of God, and he called him the Ancient of Days, and he was sitting on a throne, and there was, this, there was a river of fire around him and all this spectacular glory. And then he said, one like the ancient of the, one who, like the son of man came up to him. And to the son of man was given a throne. He was given glory, dominion, power, and that every nation and every language might serve him. He's glorious. In this letter to Timothy, Paul describes him as the king eternally mortal, invisible, the only God. To whom be glory and honor forever and ever. The only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light. He is in glory. He is glorious. He is spectacular. He is history's true conqueror and king. Great, extraordinary, magnanimous, Paul says, is this mystery. The mystery of godliness, that God became human, that God entered into the human sphere, united himself with humanity, and has changed and transformed the world. Let me close with this, this thought here. And it has to do with what Paul means here by mystery. What does that word mystery mean? The mystery of godliness. What does he mean by that? Now, when you and I think of mystery, at least me, I think of a sleuth novel, you know, a mystery novel. Sherlock Holmes or Nancy Drew for the women. I remember growing up with the famous sleuth, it was a guy named Columbo. Anybody remember Columbo? Young people, you haven't lived till you've seen an episode of Columbo. Columbo was this 
played by a guy named Peter Falk, and he was this kind of disorganized, disheveled, you know, stuff on his shirt, buttons wrong, uh, you know, detective, and he always had this cigar that he just was, in, his, just hair messed up, and he would ask these crazy questions, and he would, you know, investigate a thing, and, and he would just, he, but he would, we always called it pulling a Columbo. He would come out, he was so disarming, because he looked so incompetent, and so, and he would always nail the guy. He would always nail the bad guy. You know, we think of a mystery as being solving a crime, but, but, but more the idea of a mystery in this passage is, is the idea of a great discovery. Something that's there that has been discovered, that, is, that we were discovering how powerful and how useful and how incredible it actually is. You know, in this century, one of the great discoveries that we've experienced as a, as a species has been the discovery of DNA. And we probably all knew that something was putting us together. There was some sort of something working that would, you know, build a human being. But we, we had no idea how spectacular it was. DNA. That in every cell of your body is a six-foot-long strand. And on that strand are four billion combinations of of letters, of characters, basically more than a library's worth of information with perfect instructions, perfect instructions on how to build you, how to build a Jana Harwell or a Paul Buczynski or a Tanasia, how to build in every single cell four billion characters. It's fascinating. This extraordinary mystery, something that was it. We, we finally discovered it. We're unpacking it. Think about electromagnetic fields. We didn't, we kind of knew something was out there. You know, years ago, they would, you'd rub a balloon and it would make your hair stand up. They had some idea that something, you know, Ben Franklin did the kite with the key. But they had no idea that there were actually waves that were transmitting all over our planet. There's electromagnetic waves and through them, you can send messages. You can send pictures instantly for thousands of miles. You can send voices. You can send audio. You can send all kinds of things. There's just this, this powerful thing, this powerful mystery that we're discovering. We're unpacking something we didn't see that we're just getting into. This is what Paul's saying to, to the church, to church leaders. What we've been entrusted with as believers in Christ is this great mystery, this powerful, transforming breakthrough. And it is simply this, that God can come and has come, and he unites himself with human beings. Powerful thought. God unites himself with humanity, and he changes them. And he enables them. He changes the course of their life. He changes what can happen in them. When, when we look at a human being whose life is broken and who's hopeless and has nowhere to go, to look at that human being and think, God can live inside you. He can change your drives. He can change your desires. He can change your wants. He can have a different vision. Different type of possibilities of what's going on with you. 
And Paul is telling the church leaders, hey, this great mystery, this powerful truth is what a church is built on. That God dwells in the lives of human beings through Christ. And as we gather as a church, he dwells amongst us collectively. And it's a powerful thing. And that the wonder of Advent, the wonder and the power of his appearing can be experienced in our lives. Individually and collectively. This is a great mystery. This is the truth upon which God builds a church. That he's appeared. He has come to live amongst us, to unite himself with humanity, to unite himself with a family of humanity, and demonstrate his power, affect lives. In an incredible way. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful truth on which a church is built. It is founded on it. It's framed to support it. That in, as, and through Jesus Christ, you've appeared. Your truths were vindicated by your resurrection. And you desire to dwell and live within humanity. Help us to be good stewards of this truth. Help us to unpack this powerful mystery. Believe in it for our lives and for the lives of those around us who we love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.